Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the water. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down and they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. In his absorbing book, The Boys in the Boat, Nine Americans and Their Epic Quest for Gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Daniel James Brown recounts the story of eight unlikely rowers from Washington State who banded together to win gold on Hitler's home turf. Brown describes the crew operating at their best. Quote, All were merged into one smoothly working machine. They were, in fact, a poem of motion a symphony of swinging blades. Well, this morning we're going to encounter another set of boys in the boat, except this time it's not poetic or a symphony, it's a crisis. A global war may not be on the horizon, but actually a deeper kind of conflict is. And once again, Jesus marches onto the scene and changes everything. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. You'll recall that back in chapter 5, we saw a boat and nature miracle when Jesus calmed the storm. And then last week, we saw another nature miracle as Jesus fed 5,000 men with nothing more than an ancient lunchable. And here in today's passage, we're staring at another nature miracle and boat miracle. But most significantly, we're not just staring this morning at a supernatural event, but at a supernatural God who has made a personal appearance on the land and on the sea he made. Here's what I think is the main idea of this passage. The reason I, I give you main ideas from time to time is not because, uh, not just for the sake of you note takers, you're welcome but also because it's a way to discipline myself to preach God's word faithfully. Because if I'm doing this correctly, then the main idea of the message will be the main idea of the passage. So here's what I think is the main idea of the passage and therefore the main idea of this message. When you are struggling, 
when you are struggling, a transcendent God is coming to calm your fears and climb in your boat. When you are struggling, a transcendent God is coming to calm your fears and climb in your boat. We'll think about this in three very simple points. Number one, Jesus sees. Number two, Jesus comes. And number three, Jesus cures. Jesus sees. Jesus comes. Jesus cures. First of all, Jesus sees. Look there at verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Okay, so remember the scene where we left off last week. There's a massive multitude seated in hundreds and fifties, just the way that Moses had seated the people of Israel way back centuries earlier in Exodus 18. But the thing about this crowd in this desert place is that they are now stuffed and satisfied because Jesus, as the true and better Moses, has fed them abundantly and above all, has offered the manna they most need himself, the bread of life. But now it's grown dark, and while Jesus is dismissing the crowds, he hustles the disciples to the boat. Whereas in chapter 5, he goes with them on the boat into the Sea of Galilee. Here, he sends them away by themselves. Now, this sounds ominous to us because we know the story. We're reading this theologically, but this wouldn't have been a scary proposition to the disciples. They wouldn't have been nervous. Many of them were fishermen. They were going to be able to handle themselves quite fine making it across the lake. But Jesus is well aware that he's sending them into a situation for which they are not prepared. A situation in which they're going to make little headway. Verse 46. After leaving them, he Jesus went up on a mountainside to pray. This is one of those details that might seem familiar uh, if, you're, if you've read the Gospels a lot before, but actually it's very significant in Mark because this is only one of three times in Mark that Jesus withdraws to pray alone. Chapter 1, here in chapter 6, and chapter 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's interesting that on each of those three occasions, Jesus does so. He he goes before his father in a lonely place at night while the disciples are removed from him and failing to understand his mission. It's also clear that Mark, we know he doesn't uh, spare details Uh, unless we really need to, or he doesn't include details, unless we really need to know them. And so I think it's significant that Mark tells us that Jesus didn't just go to a generic, lonely place to pray. He went specifically where? On a mountain. Once again, Mark is presenting Jesus to us as a new Moses leading a new exodus, communing with God and interceding on behalf of the people. Now, this is the point in the sermon 
when you would expect me to say, look, Jesus withdrew privately to commune with God, so should you. And that would be a valid application. There's nothing wrong with applying this to our personal prayer lives. But this morning, I I want you to think about this idea of Jesus praying from a different angle. Because I think it can be easy to read stories like this and think, "Great! I mean, that's great. He was praying. I wonder what he was praying for. I wonder who he was praying for. I wish I was that person that he was interceding for 2,000 years ago. Imagine how mighty a prayer by Jesus is. But a scene like this can seem really distant and removed. I mean, we can wonder, well, it's great that he prayed for them back then, but what is he doing now? I wish I had that spiritual advantage that the disciples had. I wish he could be praying for me today. Well, if you belong to him by faith, I just want you to realize that that's exactly what he's doing for you today. Many of you have read, or I hope have been meaning to read, Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sufferers and Sinners. Chapter 8 of that book is entirely devoted to this question. What is Jesus doing now? Like right now, September 4th, 2022, what is Jesus Christ doing? Ortland writes, quote, One of the more neglected doctrines in the church today is the heavenly intercession of Christ. That is what Jesus is doing now. For many of us, our functional Jesus isn't really doing anything now. Everything we need to be saved, we tend to think, is already accomplished. But if justification is tied to what Christ did in the past, intercession is what he is doing in the present. Think of it this way. Christ's heart is a steady reality flowing through time. It's not that his heart was flowing forth in a burst of mercy that took him all the way to the cross, but has now cooled down, settling back once more into a kindly indifference. His heart is as drawn to his people now as it ever was. And the present manifestation of his heart for his people is his constant interceding on their behalf. One way to think of Christ's intercession then is simply this. Jesus is praying for you right now. Beloved, this means that Jesus is praying for you even when you have grown sluggish in praying to him. Jesus is praying for you even when you're too racked with anxiety to put down your phone, your calendar, your bills, your health records, whatever it may be, and fall on your knees. And this remembrance, one old pastor, Robert Murray McChain, said, remembering this, that Jesus is constantly praying for us. This isn't just something that randomly happened once upon a time on a Galilean mountainside, but today he is praying for us, and remembering it should make all the difference in our days. McChain observes, quote, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, just imagine it. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. 
yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Verse 47. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and Jesus was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Now, this is actually the first miracle in the story, probably. I mean, Jesus saw from the mountain, through the stormy conditions, in the black of night, the disciples in the middle of the lake. John tells us they're three and a half miles out. But Mark's point here is, is not just to wow us. It's not just that, wow, that's, an, that's impressive. Mark's point is to comfort us. Because you realize what's going on here. Even though the disciples couldn't see him, they were never beyond the reach of his gaze. And notice also when he sees them, what causes him to take notice of them? What draws his attention to them? Is it when they're gliding along, crushing it spiritually? No. (laughs) It is when they're not making any progress at all, when they're at their wits' end. In fact, as one commentator observes, the word here in verse 48 for straining, it, it suggests a tormenting kind of strain. It's used elsewhere of demon possession, childbirth, and hell. This is a picture of suffering. And that's when Jesus enters the picture. That's what he sees that prompts him to move into action for the sake of those he loves. The application is obvious, brothers and sisters. It's the same with us, no matter how dark your circumstances, no matter how futile your efforts might seem, no matter how far you feel like you've drifted from the course you're supposed to be on. Jesus, in all of his deity, and all of his omniscience, Jesus has not forgotten you. You don't have to send up a flare in order to win his attention. He already sees you in your struggle, and that's what's going to compel him to come down from the mountain and approach your boat. But you need to feel the futility of your own efforts first. You need to feel the futility of your own efforts before he comes. The the disciples wouldn't have needed him to come if they were coasting along right on schedule. If they were a poem of motion, a symphony of swinging blades. But they're not. They're, They're stuck in this headwind. They're just bobbing around, inching along at best. This is actually the start of a pattern in Mark. Keep an eye out for it in the weeks to come. It never goes well for the disciples when they're separated from Jesus. But again, here, they're they're not separated for long. And the reason is because he sees them. And having seen them with eyes of love, it's only a matter of time before he closes the gap. And that leads us to point number two. Jesus comes. Look at the middle of verse 48. Shortly before dawn, literally the the fourth watch of the night, between 3 and 6 a.m., 
he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. There's a line in The Horse and His Boy when C.S. Lewis simply writes, Aslan was among them even though no one had seen him coming. This is that sort of thing. Jesus suddenly appears in the darkness, on the water, leaving his disciples to, to think that this must be some kind of weightless phantom. I mean, this is a scary moment. Don't imagine some kind of cute cartoonish figure. This is an old Casper, the friendly ghost. This is a figure of mystery and terror. Probably some kind of water spirit, the disciples are thinking, that has come to haunt them. And so, their reaction, end of verse 49, they cried out. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. See, what's passing by the disciples right now is not just Jesus. It's also the theological significance of what he's doing. Remember I said earlier in the series, this was months ago, that it's like the New Testament is thoroughly hyperlinked. You, you can, it's, it's almost like you can double-click on a word here or a phrase there and immediately be transported to the Old Testament backdrop. Well, this is a great test case because in each of these three verses— 48, 49, and 50, there is a phrase pregnant with biblical and theological significance. Jesus is not on the water just pulling some middle-of-the-night stunt to wow his friends. No, he is on the water to reveal something, to unveil something to them about his deepest nature. So let's click on each of these three hyperlinked phrases and see where they take us. Number one, end of verse 48. First phrase is, he was about to pass by them. What an odd detail. What a really odd detail unless it actually happened and unless Jesus is reenacting something. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus is the second book in the Old Testament, so turn way back to the left. Exodus 33. Look at verse 18. Then Moses said, Exodus 33, 18, then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord, that is Yahweh said, I will cause all my goodness to what? Pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see my face and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. 
This same language actually appears later in the Old Testament in 1 Kings 19 when the prophet Elijah is on Mount Horeb and God says, go out and stand on the mountain. This is 1 Kings 19.11. Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. Why? For the Lord is about to pass by. You can turn back to Mark 6. Mark does not want us to miss this. What God did with Moses on Mount Sinai and with Elijah on Mount Horeb, he is doing with his disciples on the lake. As one person put it, the God of Israel, majestic and awesome but unknowable face to face, is now passing by people in Jesus of Nazareth. Phrase number two that we're going to click on. Verse 49, when they saw him walking on the lake. Now, when we click on this one, we're we're taken to passages like our call to worship at the beginning of the service that Tyson read, Psalm 77, 19. The psalmist is recalling the Exodus and exalting Yahweh. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. And of course, again, Yahweh is here on the scene in Mark 6, leading a new exodus, not out of Egypt, but out of the bondage of sin and death. But this God doesn't just walk through waves, he walks on top of them. The language here in Mark 6 doesn't just echo Psalm 77, but also Job chapter 9, which was our scripture reading earlier. And there we read Job 9, 8. He, that is, God alone stretches out the heavens and what? Treads on the waves of the sea. And then you can't miss verse 11. Just three verses later. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. See, it's all, all of a piece. This, this should not have been, the significance of this should not have been lost on the disciples who were steeped in the Hebrew scriptures and had been to synagogue every Saturday for their lives. At this moment in history, a Nazarene carpenter has interrupted their lives. He has invaded their lives. He's come onto the shore of their experience. And what is he doing? What only God can do. He's walking into their lives where only God can walk on the waves of the sea. Third phrase, verse 50. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage. And here it is. It is I. Or to put it very literally, I am. This takes us back to the burning bush. Way back in Exodus chapter 3. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read Exodus 3.13. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. I feel like I could preach a whole sermon on that. Because he doesn't say, I am who they want me to be. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And what's the context? 
there in Exodus 3. How are the people of Israel doing? When does God reveal to Israel his personal divine name? It's not when they're in the promised land. It's when they're under the oppression of Pharaoh. That's when God shows up and says, I want to introduce myself to you in a new way. Here is who I am. And sure enough, centuries later, Jesus does not see the disciples in their predicament from the safety of a mountainside and say, well, I'm going to go help them. I'll just go to the opposite shore and wait for them to make their way there. No. He comes to them in their darkness, in their distress, and says, I am is here. It's the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus refers to himself with an I am statement. He's not only walking where only God can, he's also claiming his personal name. Now, exhale a bit, take a breath. I realize that was a bit of a deep dive into the Old Testament. Don't blame me. Don't email me. Email Mark. But his purpose, Mark's purpose here in using these phrases which are clickable and pregnant with all of this biblical and theological meaning, his purpose is not simply to give us theology. It's to give us theology that will galvanize our hearts when we feel unmoored and adrift, when we feel like we're bobbing around in the darkness and exhausted from our efforts and afraid that God, the God we worship, is off on a mountain somewhere and can't really see us or help us. We saw earlier that we shouldn't fear the darkness because he sees us and will come for us, but I think another lesson is that that we need to also trust his timing. Friends, he did not come to the disciples until 4 a.m., His timing is not our timing. If you follow him long enough, you will discover that he does not come to us. He does not come to those he loves often until the fourth watch of the night. When all hope seems lost, when we can't row anymore, when when we're stuck in a headwind of discouragement and despair. But even in the waiting Even in the long waiting, he's bringing you to a good place because he's bringing you to the end of yourself. He's bringing you face-to-face with your own inadequacy and need for him. I I love how the 19th century Anglican pastor J.C. Ryle captures this aspect of the story. Quote, The same eye which saw the disciples tossed on the lake is ever looking at us. We are never beyond the reach of his care. He may not come to our aid at the time we like best, but he will never allow us to utterly fail. He that walked upon the water never changes. He will always come at the right time. Though he tarry, let us wait patiently. Jesus sees us, and he will not forsake us. And notice 
friends, that when the disciples are terrified, not only does Jesus wait most of the night before he comes, he also doesn't, when he arrives, immediately fix the problem. He doesn't immediately calm the wind. No, the first thing he does is simply he brings them himself. I think that's really significant. He doesn't say, fear not, after he's climbed into the boat. He says, fear not, and he probably has to lift his voice so he can be heard over the howling wind. It's still going on. They're still in the, the, the storm when he says, fear not. Don't be afraid. It's me. My presence is the reason you're going to be okay. Now, I confess, I haven't counted it all up myself because it would be a part-time job to do so, but I've heard that the most repeated command in the Bible is fear not. Which says something about us, right? (laughs) We need that reminder more than any other reminder, apparently. The most repeated command in the Bible is fear not, but it's almost always tied with a reason. Fear not, for I am with you. I am with you. That is the ultimate reason why we can take heart because we are not alone. Verse 51, then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. So he assured them with his word. Now he assures them with his presence. John Piper puts it well. This is not a story about getting people out of storms. This is a story about getting Jesus in the boat. But, but, Once he's in the boat, rather than fall on their faces in worship and faith, they're shocked. They're shocked as if they have no category for this guy doing anything like this. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, this is not day two, okay? At this point in his ministry, this is an an inexcusable response. It's right to be awed by Jesus. The problem is not that they're awed by him. The problem is that they stop there. Astonishment is not faith. To be very honest and blunt, hell will be filled with a lot of people who were astonished at Jesus. Astonishment is not faith. The disciples had a front row seat to witness a miracle, and yet they managed once again to miss the point. And the reason Mark tells us that they did this, the reason that they responded with amazement merely rather than also with worship and trust, verse 52, is because they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Remember last week I talked about the danger of not training your imagination to serve your theology, to match your theology. Well, this is exhibit A. This is exhibit A of an untrained, uninformed imagination. They've just experienced and even had a hand in, a literal hand in distributing the loaves. History's ultimate object lesson that Jesus can take care of you. But by this point, they're confused. 
just a few hours later, they should have known better. They should have been saying, rather than cowering in fear and astonishment, they should have been saying, of course he can bend the material universe again. It's only been hours since he did the last time. We have our basket of leftovers. Remember from last week? We have our individual faith souvenirs here in the boat with us. Of course he is marching on the waves. We know our Bibles. That's what Yahweh does. Our shepherd king can do whatever he wants. If he's proved anything to us, he's proved that. We are safe in his company. Before we roll our eyes at these disciples, we have to ask ourselves, how often are we no different? How often do we fall prey to spiritual amnesia? Where we forget just as quickly as we've learned. I mean, how often do we forget to apply something we've just learned or relearned about God to our present circumstances? How many of you will be tempted tomorrow, tomorrow, to crumble, just crumble in the face of a situation where it seems that God is distant and doesn't care, even though today he loved you enough today to give you reminder after reminder in his word and show you that he's actually the exact opposite. He will never forget you. He will always come to you. But how quickly we can fall into forgetfulness, even within the span of hours, just like these disciples. Jesus sees, Jesus comes, and third, and finally, and most briefly, Jesus cures I'm not going to dwell on, on verses 53 to 56 because it, it's really just a summary report of things that we've already seen in Mark's gospel. What Mark is doing here at the end of chapter 6 is he's transitioning to a very different kind of scene, which we'll see next Sunday in chapter 7. But in these final verses, Mark wants us to just know that Jesus' popularity continues to soar. He is powerful and he is popular. In chapter 5, we saw him heal the bleeding woman. And now it seems word has gotten out that if you so much as touch the hem of this guy's garment, you will be healed if you do so in faith. It's tempting to want to psychoanalyze these crowds, but the reality is we don't know exactly what their motives were the motives of these swarming people. I mean, perhaps the fact that there's no mention of his teaching, but only of his healing means that they were most interested in just what he had to offer them physically. But regardless of their, their motives, this is a decisive point for these people. Listen to how one commentator explains it. Quote, the physical blessings of Jesus are not an end in themselves, but a fork in the road. The physical blessings of Jesus are not an end, but a fork in the road, one branch leading to his final saving purpose, the other to a false understanding of him as simply a miracle worker. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus, we are so glad you're here this morning. Perhaps you came in thinking you were a believer in Jesus. 
but now you feel unsettled in your spirit, you're not so sure, we want you to know that you, because God loves you, he has brought you to this very kind of fork in the road in your life. And the only way that you can know the God who made you, that you can have a right relationship with the God who sees you and who loves you and who will come to those who trust in him in their darkest places, the only way you can be right with that God is to turn away from all of your sin and put your trust in him. This has everything to do with our passage. This is not just a little gospel presentation artificially tacked on to the end of a sermon. God has made a personal appearance on earth in the person of Jesus, and he has come to establish a kingdom to live a life that you should have lived, to die a death that you deserve to die, and to rise again so that if you rely on him, if you welcome him into the boat of your life with empty hands of faith, he will climb in and change everything. He'll forgive your sins and give you the hope of resurrection life in a new and better world. Let's climb into the boat again with Jesus, or rather let him climb into the boat with us and steer our course until the day when we arrive on that shore and worship him forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, whether it's whether it's under the, the blaze of the noonday sun or in the fourth watch of the night, we praise you that you see us, you care for us, you come to us, and you climb in the boat with us. Help us to take heart and not to fear because you are the God who walks on water and ultimately who went to the cross so that we could be okay with you, so that we could be safe in your arms forever. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.